Well, good morning. I'm Emily. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so hopeful and expectant about what God is doing in our church in this season. And it's part of why we are hoping to fill this room with 1,000 of you on Thursday, September 7th for CPC Night. Um, This is going to be a time for us to look back in the past and celebrate what God has done in and through this community over the last 65 plus years, and it's also going to be a time for us to look ahead, to joyfully and prayerfully look to the future that we believe God is inviting us to step into. So we really hope that you'll be here. Uh, Over 800 of you, or close to 800 of you, have already registered. Um, There are more details and information on the website. We really hope that you'll be here with us, and we're excited because ultimately we believe that the story of what's happening in this place isn't about even us. It's about God and who he is and what he's doing, and that's something that we can all be a part of. So over the last month or so, we have been walking through a book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. Um, It's a letter from an early church leader named Paul to a small group of Christians that were living in the first century city of Corinth in Greece. And the Corinthian church had experienced this beauty and freedom uh, with new life in Christ. It just had transformed their community. And at the same time, as they were growing in this new life in Christ, they were increasingly confronting and aware of the brokenness in themselves, in the world around them, in their culture, in their community. And... uh, It's your lucky day because one of the issues that they were continuing to wrestle with was the issue of sex. Um, Who gets to have sex? What kind of sex is good? What kind of sex is bad? What's, What's on limits? What's off limits? And part of why they had this question was because they realized that as the gospel started to change everything about who they were, and as they were seeking to live in sync, in step with Jesus, they began to realize how out of sync that way of life was from the cultural norms of sex and sexuality around them. So Petey preached on this last week, uh, part one of Paul's teaching on this in 1 Corinthians. If you missed it, you should definitely go back and listen to it because it really sets up a lot of what I'm going to say today in part two. Um, so I'm kind of, I feel like a little kid. I've been like giggling on the inside all week that I have to get up here and talk about sex in front of you guys. But, um, (laughs) to kind of ease that, I got permission from my mom to share this story. Um, (laughs) it's not that good. (laughs) But when I was 10 years old, my, my mom sat me down and we had our first like actual birds and bees talk. Um, my mom did a great job. She used a picture book, bless her heart. Um, And after she had gone through things, she looked at me and she was like, so like, do you have any questions? And I was like, "Mm -mm, no, (laughs) definitely not. And then all of a sudden I saw her eyes fill with tears and she just blurted out, you know, I've been dreading this day since the day you were born, but now that it's here, it's not so bad. (laughs) I'm like, not bad for you. Um, (laughs) 
Um, my mom is so dear to me. I, you can thank her that she gave me permission to share that. But, you know, as I look back on that conversation, it's actually really precious to me that my mom had such depth of emotion as she was talking with me about this. Um, and I think part of why that conversation required some courage for her is because she knew that I was going to grow up in a world that both really overvalues sex and also really undervalues sex. The story that our culture tells us about sex is that it is the most important thing in the world. It is the pinnacle of human existence. And if you're not having it, there's something wrong with you. At the same time, sex is pretty casual. It's not that big of a deal. It can even be transactional and at worst, exploitive. And this like double dynamic, this double bind that we're caught in all the time, sex is a big deal and sex is not a big deal, was very alive too in the culture of Corinth. Um, and it was a way of viewing sexuality that the early Christians realized was pretty out of sync with the gospel. And so in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul puts forward a better vision of Christian sexuality. Because for Paul, the way Christians do and don't have sex is both shaped by and points to the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is supposed to work its way all the way into this part of our lives too. And that story puts sex in its proper place as a good gift of God, but not the ultimate purpose of human existence. So today we're gonna to spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, but before we dive in, there are three things, kind of three disclaimers, caveats, things I wanna say up front. First, Paul covers a lot of ground in this chapter. So buckle up, we're not gonna to get to all of it today. Um, there are some things in this passage I'm not gonna dive into. And if I don't do that, and it's something that you have a question about, I would love to have a conversation with you about that. Um, or one of our pastors would be totally open to having a conversation with you about that. Second, this particular chapter of 1 Corinthians should really be read in the context of the whole letter. If you read this chapter on its own and you pluck some verses out of it, it's gonna read like a really rambling, poorly written advice column. And like a list of do's and don'ts are like Paul's like, it's gonna feel like Paul's drawing a line in the sand. And if you can just stay on the good side, then you're good. That is very much not what Paul is trying to actually communicate here. Um, his focus is not, where do we draw the line? His focus is, how do we embody the story of Jesus as much as we can in this part of our lives? And that is actually his whole point for the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. Whether it's food or leadership or legal matters or worship or sex, Paul wants the Corinthians to live every part of their lives in response to the reality of the gospel because only that story is the thing that truly sets us free to love God, to love ourselves, and to love one another, even with our bodies. Third, <clears throat> based on what we know about the sexual culture of the ancient Greco-Roman world, we can be pretty sure probably every single person that uh, would have read this letter in Corinth from Paul, every adult at least, had some kind of sexual 
baggage or brokenness in their past. Because this too was a culture where people overvalued and undervalued sex. Pretty much everyone had probably either made poor sexual choices or had been deeply wounded, had been in a situation that they regretted, or maybe had even survived sexual trauma. 1 Corinthians 7 was not written to people who have it all figured out here or who have it all together. It was written to people who knew sexual brokenness. And so I hope that that encourages all of us here this morning, in particular those of us who are maybe in this space today carrying with us any sense of shame related to sex or struggle or wounds or regrets. The story of Jesus matters for this place in your life, and it offers healing and a renewed path forward for you here. So with all of that said, we're going to dive in. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you want to grab a pew Bible, you can. It's on page 1629. You can also follow along on the screens with me. I'm going to kind of be jumping around a little bit, so that might be easier. So we're going to start in chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. So I'm going to stop here for a second. Um, So it seems that the Corinthian church, some people had written to Paul. And they're, they're, and Paul's quoting them back to themselves here. And it seems that like in their confrontation with sexual brokenness in their lives, that they, um, some of the men, they had decided like, we should just like give up sex altogether because we just like can't get this right, even if we're married. And Paul is like, that's a major overcorrection. <laughs> married Christians don't need to wholesale give up sex, but how they have sex really matters. And that's what would have been the shocker here for the church in Corinth. And to understand how radical some of what Paul says here is, you kind of need to get underneath and understand what was considered some of the sexual norms of the culture around Corinth. Um, It was a sexual culture that was very patriarchal and also really valued biological reproduction. So first you had like maybe married women. And for married women, they were supposed to only have sex with their husbands in order to fulfill their civic duty of having children. And it needed to be really, really clear that the children that they had only belonged to their husbands. So as an outworking of that, it became really important for the fathers and families to control and protect the virginity of their daughters And husbands were supposed to control and preserve the chastity of their wives. So the idea that there would even be any kind of female sexual desire or even discomfort was just like not even part of the equation. Men, on the other hand, uh, could pretty much have sex with 
whoever they wanted, as long as it wasn't somebody else's wife. They needed to have sex with their wives to have children, but it would have been totally expected and normal and like no big deal for them to also have sex with maybe their slaves or prostitutes. And the sort of thinking, unfortunately, was that these outlets would be a helpful way for men not to actually go and chase after other people's wives. Um, It was only adultery if you had sex with another man's wife, and even then, the offense was not against your own spouse. It was against the man of the wife you slept with, and it was considered a crime of property, not, it it was like you were stealing something that belonged to somebody else. And then finally, there were prostitutes and poor people and slaves. And these were people whose bodies were commodified and abused um, to keep the kind of social engine of the Greco-Roman world going. Uh, They didn't really get to choose what happened to them. Many historians believe that the slave trade of the ancient world was actually driven by the demand for easy, cheap sex. And Paul has been super clear in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians that this kind of sex is totally and completely out of line with the gospel. So it's into this cultural context where powerful men could do what they wanted, where wives' bodies were controlled and where vulnerable people's bodies were commodified, that Paul is giving this new vision of sexuality that is shaped by Jesus. And first, that sexuality prioritizes faithfulness. Paul teaches that sex belongs in marriage and only in marriage. He says, yes, have sex, but have sex with your own wife and your own husband. Why such exclusive faithfulness? Not to be a prude or controlling, but as he's going to say later on in a different letter to the Ephesian church, faithfulness in marriage points to the permanent and radical faithfulness of God towards his people. This is also part of why later on in this chapter, Paul will prohibit divorce in most circumstances, because in marital and sexual faithfulness to one's spouse, you embody God's own faithfulness to you, and you reflect that faithfulness to the world around you. Second, the sexuality Paul talks about is one that prioritizes mutuality, It's not about one person dominating or controlling another at all. If you look at verse four again, it says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Everyone in Corinth is like, yeah, 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 we know that, not a big deal. But then Paul says some things after this that are some of like the most game-changing words on sex ever. He says, in the same way. Hallelujah for the in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. One person doesn't get a trump card. One person isn't more important than another. A Jesus-shaped sexuality is one where both spouses will respect and care for one another, care for the desires and bodies of the other person. Both matter because both are human beings made in the image of a God who took on bodily flesh, died and rose again. And therefore, we treat the bodies of one another with reverence and respect, especially in our most intimate and vulnerable of moments. This is also part of why things like 
coercing people to have sex or forcing them to have sex or paying for sex become things that the church completely denounces. It does not reflect the faithfulness and mutuality that God desires. So this is one way we can live a Jesus-shaped sexuality. But there is another very legitimate and holy option, and that is celibate singleness. Picking up in verse 8, Paul says, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. And then skipping to verse 32. I would like you, you in particular, you unmarried people, to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. And an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, an undivided devotion to the Lord. So this too, both was back then and is today, Pretty countercultural. Um, for Paul, singleness is not a problem to solve. It is not a deficiency to fix. It is not a waiting room to stay in until then you really become an adult or start living your life. It is not God's B team for his family or his kingdom. Instead, singleness is a position of dignity and freedom. In God's family, singleness witnesses to the faithfulness and goodness of God just as much as marriage. And this was and is really good news. I want you to imagine like that you were maybe a young unmarried woman back in Corinth and your whole culture has told you that the reason you exist is to become the property of a husband and give him babies. And then Paul comes along and says, actually, the reason you exist is Jesus you belong to him first and foremost, which means that marriage and babies might be a really good thing, but it is not the only way to fulfill your purpose in life. The gospel of Jesus decenters biological reproduction as the only important way to live a fruitful life, and it instead elevates evangelism and discipleship as the way that God's family actually grows. And when that happens, people who are celibate, single people become in a, are in a position to show us the freedom that demonstrates that the lasting fruitfulness of God's kingdom is the fruit of the Spirit. Or imagine that you are a widow in ancient Corinth and you are pretty stressed out because you need to find a husband so that you can have someone who financially protects you and takes care of you. And then Paul comes along and says, actually, you belong to Jesus and his family and his household. So you don't have to be worried about finding a husband anymore. You're part of a family that will not only take care of you now, but you actually have things to contribute in this household. The gospel of Jesus decenters the nuclear family as the most important place for showing love and care in the world. It's important, but it's not the only important place. Instead, what matters most is belonging to the household of God. And when that happens, celibate singleness becomes a position of dignity that uniquely witnesses to the ways that God creates a people for himself from every background, every status, 
every class, every tribe, tongue, and nation bound together, not because we're all part of the same gene pool, but because we all share in the blood of Christ. Or imagine that you are a young man in Corinth and you've been promiscuous and you're struggling to decide whether or not to get married. Then Paul comes along and says, actually, sex and marriage aren't the most important things in life. Devotion to Jesus is. The gospel of Jesus decenters sexual desire and expression as the most important thing about who we are. Instead, what matters is wholehearted commitment to Christ, who has wholeheartedly committed himself to us. When we receive that good news, both singleness and marriage are equal opportunities for building within all of us greater desire for Jesus and growing in the habits of his kingdom. And so celibate singleness is a position of dignity and freedom for the believer in Christ, specifically because of the ways that it reflects the gospel truth and invites us all, single or married, to reimagine a fruitful life, reimagine family life, and reimagine our priorities and desires. So we have faithfulness and mutuality in marriage and dignity and freedom in singleness. Both are ways that our sexuality can be shaped by and point to the story of Jesus. Both are ways that we can live as believers fully devoted to the Lord. This is exactly what Paul says here, picking up in verse 17. He says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. In other words, he's telling this group of people, choosing to to leave your marriage because you think it'll make you holier isn't an option, or feeling this pressure to not get married isn't a thing you need to worry about. Whether you are married or single, you are called to live as if Jesus is the most important thing to you. In either situation, you belong to him. You don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to another person. Live as a believer wherever you find yourself. What I love about this is that this could look so many different uh, ways, as many ways as there are people in this room. Um, It's not going to look exactly the same for all of us, but still, I think that there are probably at least two ways that all of us could embrace living as a believer in our unique circumstances, whether we are married or single. This is something that would apply to all of us. First is that I think that we can all grow in how we think about the church community as our primary family. When I baptize children, I tell their parents that baptism means that now the most important family that their child is a part of is the family of God. And that is a truth that we need to reclaim, especially, especially in order to live a Jesus-shaped sexuality. Both celibacy and singleness and faithful monogamy and marriage are intense commitments. And frankly, I think they can only be sustained when both single people and married people are sharing life together in a community that will help uphold them in those commitments and speak the truth to them in love. Married people need community and we need it with single people. 
Single people need community, and they need it with married people and families too. And so one way we can live as believers, married or single, is by rooting ourselves in the church as our primary family and pursuing deep relationships in that place. Second, it's important to remember that both marriage and singleness are cross-shaped paths. Both are situations in which we will have to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. Neither are pathways to personal fulfillment. Neither are easy, but both are fertile ground for the new life that we have in Christ to take root within us as we learn to shed our old patterns of selfishness and pride and we learn to take up the faithfulness and love of Jesus himself in the way that we interact with others in our bodies. We can't compare the ups of marriage with the downs of singleness or vice versa. Both are places where we will find ourselves crucified with Christ, as Paul says in Galatians, realizing that the life we now live in our bodies, including our sexuality, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for us and loved us. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we desire to live completely surrendered to you in every way, including in our sexuality. Lord, would the ways that you desire our sexuality to be shaped by you not feel like restriction or bad news, but would they be good news for us? Good news about the freedom and joy we get to experience because we follow you. Would you heal the places in us where we have known sexual brokenness? Would you reveal to us the ways that we've gotten out of sync with the truth of the gospel and our desires, our habits? And ultimately, God, would you make our lives, all of us, single or married, arrows that point to the goodness and faithfulness of who you are and the joy that we have in you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.